Today on Follow Friday, we're going to talk with Bridget Todd, the host of There Are No Girls on the Internet, about the podcast that changed her life, cautionary tales from The View, and chaotic interviews with controversial people. Like, you might have already had a bad attitude about him or, like, a not liked him. Yeah. That interview will make you say, like, I am correct in my assessment that he is, like, <laughs> not a serious person. He is not a thoughtful person. But first, a big thank you to everyone who has donated to support Follow Freddy on Patreon. If you want to be like them, you can find the link in the show notes. And thanks as well to this week's sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by Apprentice, which helps small and mid-sized businesses find great talent to work for them. Apprentice matches C-suite executives and business founders with college students that work on projects related to digital marketing, sales, data analytics, and executive assistance. If you have fewer than 30 employees, you can get four weeks of free executive assistance thanks to our new partner, Apprentice. Connect with their matching team at this URL, followfriday.net slash apprentice. Again, that's followfriday.net slash apprentice. You want to sound smart in your next meeting, right? Of course you do. But here's the problem. You don't have time to keep up with all the latest updates on social media. And that's why you should listen to this podcast from the global creative agency, Gray. It's called Five Things This Week in Social. The hosts have partnered with some of the world's biggest brands, and they are experts in social media and emerging tech. Listen to Five Things This Week in Social wherever you get your podcasts, or search for it with a hashtag and the number five things. Okay, here's the show. Today is a good day to meet some new friends. Hey. Everyone make a way. The show is a buffet. A function should know. Hey. So let's have a swirl. Well, that's enough for a place. So now right away. With no further delay. It's Friday. Friday. It's Friday. Friday. I'm Eric Johnson. Welcome to Follow Friday, the podcast about who you should follow online. Every week, I talk to creative people about who they follow and why. This is a guided tour to the best people on the internet, led by your favorite writers, podcasters, comedians, and more. If this is your first episode of the show, take a moment now and please follow or subscribe to Follow Friday in your podcast app. Today on the show is Bridget Todd, the host of the award-winning podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet. It explores the ways marginalized people have been overlooked online, even though those same people have been shaping the internet from the beginning. She's also the director of communications for the gender justice advocacy group, Ultraviolet. You can find Bridget on Twitter at Bridget Marie and on Instagram at Bridget Marie INDC. Bridget, welcome to Follow Friday. So glad to have you here. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, well, congrats on the recent uh, Shorty Award that you won. Um, there are no girls on the internet. I, you have been on my wish list for a long time. I'm so glad we finally uh, found time to make this happen. Oh, I'm so flattered. I was saying before we started recording, it's kind of a weird week. We, we're going to get to your fun, cool follow recommendations. But first, there's all this serious going on in the world. And I do want to ask you about something that you're an expert in 
which is disinformation and social media. We are recording just a day after this shooting in Texas, this uh, tragedy in Texas. A lot, a lot of children died, and right away, there's all these liars online who are spreading disinformation about who the shooter was and what's happening and, and all these things. And this happened. This has happened a lot. This is a pattern. People pollute our social media feeds and make it hard to know like what's going on. Uh, makes a, a sad situation even worse. And so I'm wondering, you know, from, from the work that you've done on the podcast and otherwise, do you have any advice for individuals who are trying to like deal with this right now of how they're, they're seeing disinformation flood the feed and they're not sure what to believe, how to like process, I guess, all this stuff they're seeing. Yeah, um, I appreciate that question. And I think it, it's it's such a hard time to be talking about it because I'm, I don't know how folks will be feeling when this comes out, but for me, it feels very raw. I'm like, you know, it's like we were just coming off of a wave of pretty brutal shootings in California and Buffalo. And then even before that conversation is really done, where folks can have a chance to process here we are again. And so um, I just want to like just hold space for that because it's a lot. And I think for me, I really had a moment last night where I was just kind of enraged. So I was on a, a run when I got the news alert about the shooting. And what made me so angry beyond just the unfathomable loss of these young people and their their educators was the fact that I have seen this play out over and over and over again. And so I was like, I know they're going, there's one image of a young woman from a school shooting that I know they're going to circulate and say, oh, it's the same woman from Sandy Hook who was at Parkland. It was a false flag. She's an actor. It's upsetting because I already knew the playbook that we were going to see. And also there were some new hits, I guess, from folks who are using our internet platforms to spread inaccurate dangerous information about a crisis, an active crisis. Um, I think, and, and, you know, we talk a lot about how sometimes it can be like fringe extremists or like bad actors who are doing this, but we also need to contend with the fact that in talking about this shooting, elected officials, you know, I think it was Representative Gosar who said that completely based in nothing that the perpetrator was trans. And that's not true. And already, you know, from putting that out into our digital ecosystem, Already, I have seen that narrative repeated over and over and over again. And so here we are. We have a name of the perpetrator. We, you know, know who they are. And yet, because of this irresponsible use of our digital platforms to spread lies and hate and inaccuracies about people who are already marginalized and already underrepresented in our lives, this falsehood will persist. And so I guess for me, it's it's just enraging. Um, I think that for anybody who feels like I do, who feels powerless, perhaps, uh, in the face of all of this, I understand that it makes sense to feel that way, I guess I'll say. But, you know, we can all play a part in making sure that we're responding in a responsible, ethical way to the wave of BS that we are going to see about this shooting and really that persists and pop up in any kind of crisis situation. And so definitely don't engage with it. Even if you want to debunk it or point out how horrible it is, nine times out of 10, because of the algorithmic nature of our social media platforms, you're only actually helping that piece of content grow and spread and, and become more powerful. So 
I would really encourage folks to, to see this as a, an opportunity to practice a kind of mindfulness about how we're absorbing information on social media and that you don't have to retweet everything right away. Take a beat, take a breath, really ask yourself, is this content that I'm about to share, does it act, does it have verified information first and foremost? Is it actually adding to the discourse in a way that is meaningful that I need to be doing, right? I've already seen people tweeting things and then deleting them and then being like, oh, I said this and I wish I hadn't because we're, we're, our emotions are hot. And so that's completely reasonable. But I would really say like in this moment, taking a bit of time to practice mindfulness while we're using social media, I think is key. Yeah, I, I, I love that advice. And I mean, I saw something someone tweeted yesterday. They said, unless your job specifically involves using social media, it's OK to close the apps and not be doom scrolling all night. Right. I think that that the, the well-intentioned idea of like, oh, I want to stay informed on whatever's happening in the world, that can then lead into some of our, our worst behaviors. It can lead us to have these hair-trigger angry responses. It can lead us to spread disinformation unknowingly. I mean, it can lead to all these these dark things, just even though we, we may be approaching it with the best intentions of just, you know, trying to read a lot and trying, trying to keep abreast of everything. Totally. I mean, last night, I completely logged off. I sort of have been using the internet long enough to sort of know what my physical and emotional response is when I'm mm -hmm. triggered or my like my like fur is up. And for me, it's exactly what you just described, right? It's feeling like I need to see and consume every single tweet, every single update, every new piece of information, and when I'm moving very quickly, right? And so I caught myself last night and I realized I am in a, in a highly emotionally charged state where nothing that I put out into the wider social media ecosystem is going to be doing anybody any good anywhere, least of all me, right? And so mm. I, at, at, that, at that moment, was like, it's time for me to log off and like take it to my journal, take it to my group chat, take it to my partner, not taking it to the wider ecosystem of social media. And that's fine. Like, I think that sometimes we really, there are other ways to process externally other than social media. And so learning to recognize your patterns and your triggers, whether it's over consuming new updates on the news when it's when it's heavy or something else, I think it can be really good in a moment like this. Well, like I said, we, we are going to move on to your, your follow recommendations. You have a great list of some really fun, cool people who we should be following. But uh, do hope that people take that advice for the future. Unfortunately, it does seem like this is not going to be the last of these events like this. And so um, really good to bear in mind, you know, that there, there are ways to, to cope in, in that way. But let's turn to the positive side of social media. Let's find out who Bridget Todd follows online. You can follow along with us today. Every person she recommends will be linked in the show notes and in the transcript at followfridaypodcast.com slash Bridget. It's Final Friday. So Bridget, before the show, I gave you a list of categories and I asked you to tell me about some people you follow who fit in those categories. Your first pick is in the category, someone you have a crush on. And you said Jonathan Larroquette, who is on Instagram at Jonathan Larroquette. And his last name is spelled L-A-R-R-O-Q-U-E-T-T-E. -E. Jonathan is a musician and the co-host of a podcast called Ah uh, Yeah Dude, which recently surpassed 900 episodes. Jonathan and his co-host Seth Ramatelli have been making it since 2006 and I've never listened to this. I was trying to read up on it, trying to understand what exactly it is. But do you want to take a stab at explaining, uh, yeah, dude? 
Yeah. So, Oh Yeah Dude is the first podcast I ever listened to. It was the podcast Ooh. that made me fall in love with podcasts. Uh, I will, I, I'm probably not exaggerating to say it, it like low key changed my life. It's a podcast where, kind of in the tradition of like how all podcasts kind of were in the beginning, just like two funny guys like riffing about the news. Um, but it, it's also so much more than that. Like, fun fact, it was one of the earliest podcasts. They uh, debuted in 2006. And most people think of like Mark Marin as the first podcaster. But Mark Marin in interviews has credited uh, Yeah Dude as his inspiration to get into podcasting. So wow. yeah, a very, a very early days of podcasts. And it's, it's so funny. Like when people ask me like, oh, what's your favorite podcast? I wish I could say something that's like very highbrow, but it's definitely a uh, yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, and so they've been doing it continuously and all that time since 2006. Yes, continuously oh since 2006. And uh, that's like, the podcast has all these little mottos and one of them is 2006 for life because that's when they started. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 2006, like, I don't think we even had a concept for what podcasting was going to be, right? Like, mm-hmm. we certainly didn't know the, how, how the industry would change and how it would become bigger and more professionalized in a lot of ways. We'd, I, we had no idea. But just like the idea of starting this thing back in 2006, and here it is 2022, and you're not only still doing it, but still going strong. They have a, a small but very dedicated fan base. They are, their live shows sell out massive theaters um, in big cities, so... Yeah, I just I I love that they were have been doing it for so long. Yeah, I was I was reading about uh yeah dude and it, uh, reading things written by their fans and it does seem like they have a lot of parasocial relationships for lack of a better <laughs> word. Their listeners are really attached to to Jonathan and to to Seth. So so, so so could you elaborate on why why do you why do you say you have a crush on Jonathan? Like what is it that he does that makes him so special? Oh. So in an episode, so you're absolutely right about the parasocial relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that mine is not like creepy. Um, <laughs> not the bad kind. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the, the normal kind, the healthy kind. Uh, right. In an episode, he once described himself as big, hairy, and unreliable. And I was like, boy, that, that's so my type. <laughs> and honestly, now that I'm realizing it, I just realized I probably should have said my husband for my big crush. <laughs> He's Too late. No going back now. Too late. He's going to listen to this and be like, well, you didn't, you had a chance to say me. You said somebody else. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Is, is it too much of a leap to, to assume that your husband is also big, hairy, and unreliable? Or, or is Jonathan um, a special case? <laughs> Jonathan's a special case. My husband is not big. Harry, but very reliable. So I feel like it's like it's like my my two, you know, we all have two wolves inside of us, right? It's just like, <laughs> do you want to go with someone who is hairy, not big, but reliable, or <laughs> someone who's big, hairy, and unreliable? I feel like, you know, right. we've all got two paths. <laughs> <laughs> but so so that personality, the way he describes himself, that comes through, I assume, in how he and Seth talk about the world. Like, I, I was reading, this was from an essay in KQED written by Lizzie Acker, who's a big fan of the podcast, and she says, they are describing an experience, their experience, and that is the experience of being white, privileged, straight, and male, but also being confused and worried about the implications of that status. So, I mean, like you said, they, they've been doing this for a long time. This is before the idea of two straight straight white dudes sitting around and chatting was like a, a cliche or like a joke in podcasting. They, they, they were kind of, you know, pioneers in, in, in a way. But, like, I guess what has been a fan of this podcast for so long 
how has that changed your outlook on on the world or on people like them? I mean, how 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 has listening to them changed your your, your perspective on things? Oh my god, what a good question! So it's it's so strange, but it, the perspective of straight white males is not a perspective that I like immerse myself in. And that's kind of on purpose because it's just like, right. oh, like I grew up having to read, you know, white men's writing in English classes. And then when I when I was no longer being assigned it, I was like, I want to immerse myself in something else. I want to immerse myself in my and like my people and my perspective and people who look like me. And so when I first started listening to uh yeah dude, I realized I was like, I have kind of built up a vibe where like I really don't, you know, spend a lot of time grappling with that experience or like thinking about that perspective. And so it, it honestly, and it, it being a podcast and their, their podcast is so like intimate and honest and raw. I felt like it was giving me an entry point into a perspective that frankly, I would like never really encounter. And what's so interesting, I, th- I think the essay that you read kind of g- gets into this. They've been doing this since 2006, right? And so I almost in a lot of ways feel like we kind of grew up together because I remember in the early days of the podcast, back before we, as a as a country, were having conversations about, you know, things like language and perspectives and how you show up with respect for others and marginalized people, before we were having those conversations, they were, they sounded like a completely different podcast. And I feel like yeah. as we progressed as a society, I feel like you hear them grapple with that on the show, like there's an episode where they're like, oh, we've been using the R slur, just throwing it around. And now we're realizing we can't say that anymore. And like, I guess it's interesting because I feel like for better or for worse, we don't really have a lot of spaces where you can hear people grapple with things like that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've been in like social change movements for a long time. And I do think we have this expectation that people, we expect people to show up with like the right ethos and the right language and the right perspective. And I get that. But I also feel like it doesn't leave room to hear the messy conversations of how people become smarter, better, more nuanced, more thoughtful. And certainly I identify with that because like, I was a hot mess many years ago, right? Like, I, like, I, like I didn't come out of the womb knowing the exact right mm-hmm. language and the exact right praxis and yada, yada, yada. And so I, I don't know. And I think that podcasting, particularly the way that their podcast is framed, it can be this avenue where you can hear someone deal with things, unlearn things, unpack things, move along. Like, and it just it just is so fascinating to me. And yeah, in a lot of ways, I feel like we kind of grew up together, or like that yeah. was the most parasocially thing you could ever say, because we did not grow up together. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like I've been listening to them for so long, and it's like I feel like I have gotten smarter, they have gotten smarter, we have gotten smarter together, and to have witnessed that, listened to that, I think is really special. And we don't have spaces where that can really happen in a way that feels, you know, okay. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I I would understand if they decided, hey, we're gonna delete the first 100 episodes or whatever. But it seems like they have kept everything, at least maybe for their Patreon supporters. Like, it's possible to listen to that whole journey from the beginning, if you if you so choose, Um, which I I respect in a way. I mean, that that takes a, a level of owning up to your own growth, your own past failings that not everyone has, you know? Totally. And I think, like, as a podcaster, there's something so... So, like, my podcast is, like, a narrative-produced podcast, and if I 
breathe weird. I'm like, cut that out, cut that out. Like <laughs> I've, I've taken podcast episodes down for the, for the smallest stuff, but their podcast is not like that. Like you could go back and listen to their whole back catalog if you wanted, which I definitely respect. Um, and yeah, you just get to, you know, it's almost as somebody who makes a like very produced podcast, it's almost like euphoric to hear a podcast that's kind of warts and all where, you know, yeah. you hear them say the wrong thing, get it wrong, like mess up, start again, try again, apologize. Like, I almost like feel like it makes me appreciate the art of podcasting more because that's the stuff that I love about listening to a podcast. When somebody is grappling with something in real time or, you know, learning about something for the first time or getting to hear that process, I think is like what attracts me to the medium. 100%. Well, that was Jonathan Larroquette, who is on Instagram at Jonathan Larroquette. And the name of the podcast is Uh Yeah Dude. Oh, and one quick fact. If you're curious if he is related to the actor from Night Court, it's his son. Oh. <laughs> I, I think I saw that. I think when I was Googling for him, it was like, no, 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 not that John Larroquette. The, uh, the other one. <laughs> <laughs> it's Final Friday. Bridget, I asked you to tell me about someone that you're embarrassed to admit you follow. And you said Megan McCain, who was on Twitter and Instagram at Megan McCain. Her first name is spelled M-E-G-H-A-N, and her last name is M-C-C-A-I-N. Megan is one of those political figures who's always been on the periphery of my bubble. I've never really paid that much attention to her, but she's very famous. She was the co-host of The View. She's been a pundit on Fox News and MSNBC. She's the author of several books, including Dirty Sexy Politics and Bad Republican. How did you start following Megan McCain? Oh... Megan McCain. Oof. I can't. I, did I really put that? Yes, you did. <laughs> I, I've, I've got it in think, writing. <laughs> I think I must have been writing this completely divorced from the understanding that I was going to be talking about it in a couple <laughs> weeks. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I like love to hate Megan McCain, I guess I'll say. Like when her uh, father was running for office for, for the presidency, she that was when she really like popped up on my radar and I'll never forget seeing this interview that she did on uh, Bill Maher many, many years ago, where she was asked by somebody, I can't remember who, about, oh, do you think that Obama and the Obama administration, that they blame the Bush administration too much for like where we are as a country and that like, oh, we inherited a mess. And she was like, no, I don't think so. And then whoever asked the question was like, you're absolutely incorrect. Like, they don't blame the Bush, the Bush administration nearly enough, you know, went and did a whole list of things. And she was like, well, some of that was happening before I, like, when I was like a child, when I was like nine years old. And that interview really sticks with me because it's like, if you don't know, you could just say that. You don't have to give a like, like it really, I think that that, in, that one interview crystallized what I find so troublesome and problematic about really like a whole batch of political media, not right or left, mm. just like in general that like, if you're asked a question like that and you don't know the answer, it's okay to say like, well, God, I don't know. Good question. I, mm -hmm. I'm not sure. But the need to like come up with a big grandstandy answer only to when it's like just mildly poked at, admit that you really have no idea what you're talking about. For some reason, that interview sticks with me as a real illustration of a deep problem that we have in our discourse. And right. I don't know. For some reason, she just came to represent a certain kind of political media that I really dislike and that I think is really mm. holding us back. But yet I just can't quit it. Like I follow her. I engage with her tweets. I've read part of her book, uh, mm -hmm. her most recent book. 
people are always like, if you hate her so much, why don't you want to follow her? And it's a good question. <laughs> why don't I? <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, what, what are the things that what what are some of the things that you you like about following her? Like, do you do you is it because you agree with her on certain political issues, or is it something about you know how she has changed since that interview that that keeps you coming back? Like, how, how would you articulate that? That's a good question. I think that she. I think that why I like to kind of hate follow her, and I'm not like sending her mean tweets or anything, but like, yeah, yeah. I think why I like, why I'm interested in her is that I do think it, she represents a kind of, how can I put this tastefully or tactfully? <laughs> she, so she's someone who like, I, in a, in a lot of ways, could see myself not like agreeing with because our, our politics are so like, we could not be less, aligned. But in in a certain way, I could see her being someone that I have a certain kind of respect for. We're of similar ages. I like the idea of women who are sort of like doing their own thing and like outspoken. Like those are all things that on paper I should like. And I think that when they come out of her, when, when it's her who is doing it, she has this way of reminding me that like, oh yeah, some things are noxious and it doesn't matter if, if I like on paper should respect them, right? And she also has this thing, it's hard to explain. And, and I watched her a lot on The View because my mom is obsessed with The View. Whenever, whenever I'm home, my mom and I would watch The View constantly. Yeah. There's a kind of like vibe to her where she, on The View especially, but also in her book and on Twitter, just kind of always has the position of aggrieved. So like, it doesn't matter mm. what the conversation is. It doesn't matter what, like what's happening. Her position is I am aggrieved. And honestly, in a kind of way, it, it's a, it's a kind of cautionary tale for myself that like that kind of stance doesn't move people. It's not compelling. And so if you, if you are trying to move people and, and find common ground and have conversations that are meaty and interesting and all of that stuff, coming from a place of like, I am aggrieved is not, never going to be the way to do it. And even on things where it's like, I could, I could possibly see where you're coming from here. The stance of like, just grievance is not good. And I think that with Megan McCain, I think she's so interesting because you know, I've worked in sort of like the political space for a long time. And why I got into politics is because I'm a lefty progressive. When I was first getting into politics in college during the Bush administration, I would be really active in my college and on campus and having these conversations with like libertarians and Republicans and conservatives and people that I did not agree with. But it felt substantive to talk about the ways that we disagreed and the, the things that we didn't have in common. And like, even if we didn't agree, we were still talking about like policy conversations that were like of substance. And I think there was this shift where now we're no longer doing that, right? Like one side is saying two plus two is four. And the other side is saying like two plus two is applesauce, like something that comes, like we're not even having the same conversation. And so I think that Megan McCain came about at a time where there really weren't a lot of conservative voices that I felt were like worth entertaining. And that was like a new thing for me. Cause it's like, I, I don't like, I'm not, I don't agree with what they have to say, but like, I want, I want all people to be like saying things that are useful and thoughtful. And so she came about at a time that I think was like a really interesting time for conservative voices. And so part of me feels like I, again, should have a respect for her, but I still like, Every time she tweets, I'm like, oh, terrible take again, Megan. <laughs> like, every time I see her on The View, I'm like, oh, 
<laughs> Another horrible take. <laughs> Terrible take. I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, no, I, I, like I said, I'm, I'm not super familiar with like her politics, but I, but I was, whoever wrote her Wikipedia page anyway, was certainly emphasizing ways in which she has tried to push the Republican Party to be more socially liberal. She's apparently, based on what I read, very pro-gay rights, which certainly is not the, not the norm in her party. And, you know, the, so there, there are ways in which she is, I, as she describes herself in the new book, she's a bad Republican, quote unquote. You, you were talking about talking with people who you disagreed with about policy and the fact that that conversation has basically gone away, just the disconnect between political parties right now. Do you think that individuals who don't work in politics, who are just sort of, you know, run-of-the-mill voters, do they have a responsibility to be having those conversations, to be following people, or or is that something that should be left to policymakers and journalists and folks who are who are actively like in the public conversation, if that makes sense. Yeah, what a good question. I'm not sure that I have a good answer because I feel like if you would have asked me this 10, 12 years ago, I might have said, sure, of course, like mm-hmm. get to know people that have different attitudes than you. I feel like the attitudes that we're discussing sometimes are so unserious. And I don't I don't want to mm. paint people with a, a wide brush. Like I don't mean that everybody you know, this is reflective of everybody, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be a fruitful use of your time to like have a conversation with somebody who believes that Hillary Clinton is drinking baby's blood or that Nancy Pelosi is in a dungeon somewhere with children, right? Like, and so I think that it's a real testament to the fact that how out of control some of our discourse has has gotten and that the fact that like people who are leaders of our political parties are, are... saying these perspectives. It's not just like fringe extremists and like people on the internet. And so I don't know that it is a good use of your time always to engage with people if their position is coming from a place of not believing that you are deserving of human rights or or believing something that is like completely harmful and dangerous, right? And so I don't know. I, I wish I had a better answer to that question. I think it's a good question. But I think that these days... I really yearn for what it used to feel like when I was 19 on my college campus, like having what felt like meaty, substantive debates with people who didn't agree with me. And even though I didn't agree with them, I felt like, well, we're both talking about like policies. We're having a policy debate right now or, you know, we're we're both bringing something to the table that we feel like is meaningful. And I guess I, I, I really yearn for those days because I got a lot. I got a lot out of that. Like that was really like useful to my development, both as a, you know, political professional and just as a person, a human being. And I and I worry sometimes that we're losing spaces where people can have those kinds of substantive conversation. But I, I guess I'm, I guess these days I don't feel like we like I don't know that it will be useful advice to be like, oh, yeah, go get out of your bubble and like this and that. I feel like a lot of us are steeped in the attitudes and perspectives of people that we don't agree with all the time. It's not like, like, I think mean, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who was truly in some kind of a like liberal only bubble. I'm a big proponent of curating your social media feeds pretty aggressively. Like I'm like, you should unfollow, you should mute, you should block whatever you got to do to like maintain your sanity. And I'm thinking that my rubric for the people I follow is like, dehumanizing posts if, if someone mm-hmm. is you know targeting someone for their their gender their sexuality their race for, for for anything like that i feel like that's the automatic you're you're go you're going i don't want to hear from you again 
but I think, but I think there's also that's also a really good point. It's like we are all surrounded by people who have nuanced views on things. It's it's not you can't. It's it's harder to do that for the for the people you know in in real life. And maybe maybe that's where the most productive conversations are going to happen. I don't know. Yeah, I, I I agree with you, and I'm a huge curator of. You know, if somebody dehumanizes even a, a, a marginalized group that I'm not part of, I'm like, I just don't have mm-hmm. time for it. I, I'm, yeah. I feel like we should no longer be coming from a place of trying to convince people that we are like deserving of basic mm-hmm. human dignity and respect. Like that is we're not doing that anymore. So if you're not there, then bye. <laughs> I don't, I don't right. have time to like catch you up to speed. That is your work. That is your ministry. I wish you luck, but like yeah. do it away from me. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, that was Megan McCain, who is on Twitter and Instagram at Megan McCain. We are going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back in a minute with Bridget Todd. She's the host of the podcast. There are no girls on the Internet. And while we take this little break, I would love it if you could go to lovethepodcast.com slash follow Friday. That is where you will find links to all the places you can rate and review this podcast which is a free and easy way to help us grow. The link is in the show notes. Okay, we'll be back after this. Today's show is brought to you by Apprentice, which helps executives and entrepreneurs delegate tasks in digital marketing, sales, and project management. Their apprentices are college students from top schools who go through special training so they can work in your business as marketing managers, sales representatives, and project specialists. If you're a C-level executive with fewer than 30 employees, you can get four weeks of free executive assistance thanks to Apprentice. So connect with their matching team at followfriday.net slash apprentice. Again, that's followfriday.net slash apprentice. Today's show is brought to you in part by a podcast that I really enjoyed called Square Peg. It's about a vengeful one-eyed British curmudgeon on a decades-long mission to have his brother thrown in jail. In 2017, an American suburban dad named Rob Collins accidentally gets sucked into Frank's bizarre world and goes on a two-year quest to help him and to learn the truth. Rob tells Frank's story with curiosity, integrity, and most importantly, empathy. Make some tea on a rainy day and binge this show. Check it out at squarepegpodcast.com. I want to tell you about another podcast I love, and I think you're going to love it too. Upworthy Weekly, Upworthy's first podcast, is a lighthearted look at some of their most popular and engaging stories. Delivered to your podcast feed every Saturday, it's the perfect way to shake off the Monday to Friday news cycle with a refreshing dose of good news. Join Todd Perry, one of Upworthy's most prolific writers, and Allison Rosen, a podcaster, writer, and TV personality best known for the show Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend, as they go through the week's best stories about humanity. Subscribe to Upworthy Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. It's Final Friday! Welcome back to Follow Friday. Bridget, let's move on to your next follow. I asked you for someone you don't know but want to be friends with, and you said Z-Way, who is on Twitter at Z-Way, which is spelled Z-I-W-E. Z-Way is a comedian and a former writer for Jesus and Marrow, and she now has her own variety show on Showtime called Z-Way. This is how Showtime describes the show. A no-holds-barred mix of musical numbers, interviews, and sketches that challenge America's discomfort with race, politics, and other cultural issues. Does that sound right to you? Is, is that kind of what, what, what you go to the show for? 
Oh yes, that's a that's a very apt description. Yeah, <laughs> like, t- talk about what she, what she does. Like, how does Z Way run the show, and what kind of what makes her? She such is a great... no one does an interview like her. Do you know when you're watching an interview and you can tell the interviewer is like being a softball, or they're like, you know, you've got a question, you're like, why did they ask him this? She asks them that, and then she makes them uncomfortable until they answer. Uh, I love the way that she puts people on the hot seat. And, e- and even before she had her show on Showtime, her thing was these like very chaotic Instagram lives that she would do where whenever there was a celebrity, usually a white celebrity, but like not always, um, who was in hot water for something that they had said or done, she would have them on, on her Instagram live for like a very deep, like needling interview. And I'll never forget the interview that she had with... um chef, uh, famous chef. I make her shallot pasta all the time. Alison Roman. She, it was after Alison Roman was in all that hot water for comments that she made about Chrissy Teigen. And shortly thereafter, Z-Way had her on Instagram live. And when I tell you that everybody that I knew was like glued to our phones to, to, to watch this interview. So that was a good one. Another iconic one was, um, the like kind of scammy influencer, Caroline Calloway. She had her on her Instagram live. Like, so even before she had her Showtime show, her Instagram live was the place to be. Like this was at the height of COVID also. So we were like in the house and I was in the house glued to Z-Way's Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) And I saw that before the Instagram live, maybe, maybe the Instagram is like a spinoff of it. She had a YouTube show uh, called baited, where she she would bait. Uh, according to Wikipedia, she baited non-black friends into making racial faux pas. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's just chaotic. Like, I guess I feel like in a world where everything is sort of polished and like, I, I used to uh, be a producer on a podcast where all the guests were like A-list famous people, and people would listen to that podcast and be like, oh, like such and such A-lister is so down to earth and like just a regular person. If you knew how many like frantic PR people and assistants went into that interview, making you think it was like human Mm -hmm. and down to earth, it would appall you. And so (laughs) I feel like in in a world where there's just so much like perfected, polished PR driven moments, Having people like Z-Way who can really cut through that and just give us the real, real and hold people accountable and make people uncomfortable and make us uncomfortable as viewers, I really value. We do not have enough spaces like that where there's been so many times where I'm like, oh my God, I bet her PR person is texting her like, stop talking about this right now um, during like a Z-Way interview or a Z-Way live stream. But yeah, God, God bless her. We need it. Bring in a little <laughs> chaos to the internet. <laughs> So you mentioned the, the Alison Roman Instagram live. Is is there are there any other interviews like highlights that she's done either from Showtime show, from Instagram, from anywhere else where it's like, oh my gosh, this is the 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 ultimate of just what makes her so incredible at this. Oh, I do have one. Yeah, and it's it's tough because it's like this is an instance where it's like, and she she when she has people on the show, it's not like she's mean to them or hates them, but she does just yeah. ask hard-hitting questions. And so this is an instance where it's like, oh, I like them both, but like, I'm curious to see what happens. Um, The playwright, Jeremy O'Harris. So um, he is the uh, author of the play Slave Play, which I have not seen. I would 
die of happiness to see it, but I have not had a chance. But during the run of that play, that play was accused of being a not so great depiction of black women. And he's black himself. And so I think that she has a really good way of like interrogating intra-community issues in this like very nuanced way because you know, Black folks, we are not all a monolith. We we think differently. We feel differently. We have different perspectives. And I feel like that interview in particular, she handled so, um, not delicately, the opposite of delicate, but in a good way. Like, yeah. she, just really, she just really got to the sort of needling issues under the surface in a way that I don't think many interviewers could. So yeah, the, the, her interview with Jeremy O'Harris is a good one. Also, her recent interview with... Tom Hanks' son, Chet Hanks. Oh, no. Um, about- <laughs> You're oh, not no. on board? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm like, it, it, you, you got to really sell me on this one. I'm like, do I really need more Chet Hanks content in my life? <laughs> well, what's good about that one? It's good because it really, I'm not a huge Chet Hanks fan. Uh, yeah. And what's interesting is that I think her interview shows him, like you might have already had a bad attitude about him or like a not liked him yeah that interview will make you say like i am correct in my assessment that he is like (laughs) not a serious person he is not a thoughtful person i went into that interview being like oh i wonder if i'll learn some like chet hanks nuance and i walked away thinking like oh there's less to chet hanks than i thought (laughs) (laughs) if that makes sense it does okay maybe maybe i'll watch it maybe maybe i'll i'll (laughs) have a drink and turn it on Let's let's say Z-Way calls you up tomorrow and says, Bridget, I just heard you on my favorite podcast, Follow Friday. You seem like a lot of fun. Let's hang out. So what do you want to do with her, with your new friend? Do you want to go somewhere with her? Is there something you want to talk to her about? Ooh, what a good question. This is going to be a little bit of a weird answer. I don't know if boys in middle school did this, but girls in middle school and high school, we used to do this like horrible thing, which like looking back now is like torture the three-way phone call where you would call someone Ah. and be like, like, hey, so what do you think about Judy? And they don't know Judy's on the other line listening. I would want (laughs) to time travel back to junior high and and make some like really chaotic three-way phone calls where someone (laughs) is listening in on the other side. That sounds so mean, but it will be a dream come true. I bet she'd be really good at that. I, I, I wonder if maybe that's what she used to do, and that's how she got so good at her, what she does. She would be a master of the of the sneaky three-way phone call. Oh, my gosh. All right, well, that was Z-Way, who is on Twitter at Z-I-W-E. Do you have a suggestion of who should be on a future episode of Follow Friday? Send us an email. Hello at Follow Friday Pod... Hello at followfridaypodcast.com. It's Follow Friday. We have time for one more follow today. And Bridget, I asked you for someone who makes the internet a better place. You said Naj Austin, who is on Instagram at Naj Austin. That's N-A-J-A-U-S-T-I-N. And she's on Twitter at N-A-J-J-M-A-H-A-L, Naj Mahal. Naj is the founder and CEO of the social networking platform Somewhere Good, which describes itself as an audio platform for intimate community conversations. Are you are you on somewhere good? Do you use this this platform? I think it's only in beta, but I yeah, just got it. Just it came and out. it's been yeah. yeah, it's it's really I have not been optimistic about a social media platform in a really long time. And it's wow. sort of like that's how that's how much I enjoy it. Yeah. Okay, explain how it works for people who either don't know it or can't get in. Like what's what ended yeah. the beta? 
it's a bit like a clubhouse or like Twitter spaces. And so it's an audio based uh, platform. So like I'm a podcaster. So like I love audio. And it's really about building these intimate little communities and groups around niche subjects. And so, you know, I, I, I have this thought about like, platforms like Twitter or Facebook or TikTok, sometimes they can be a bit much because everybody's invited, right? And so like, if I wanted to tweet at you, not only are you seeing my tweet, but everybody that we, everybody could be seeing our tweet, right? And so mm-hmm. I have this, there's this, this understanding that sometimes scale, trying to make things as big and open as possible can be at odds with things like curation and building intimate communities intentionally. And so mm-hmm. somewhere good to me feels like a return to this idea of, you know, what if we built intimate communities around niche subjects and things like that? And so it's much more intimate. It's just feels like an exciting, fun place. Like it reminds me of some of the early days of what social media kind of used to feel like when I was a bit younger, where it felt like you were, you know, gathering around a campfire rather than gathering in a cafeteria. Because all the companies, all the social media companies, to date anyway, maybe maybe not somewhere good, but all of them, the explicit goal has been get as big as possible, have as much engagement as possible. And it seems like maybe it sounds like this one is intentionally being designed to have different goals, to encourage a different type of engagement that's not maybe quite as public facing that maybe maybe would never would have no chance of ever getting to that scale. Is that does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds right to me. And I mean you would have to ask her to for her like ultimate vision, yeah. but that that feel that feels like the experience that I'm having when I'm on the platform. Yeah. And I, I think that you're you really hit on something of like, I don't know that you can have the goal of being the biggest platform with the most users, which I know that platforms like Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, that's their that's their MO. Mm-hmm. I don't know that you can have that as a goal and still keep things like care and intention and uh, you know at the heart of what it feels like to use that platform. And so it's just nice to show up online someplace where you feel like a person rather than a user, which I feel like the experience of being on other social media platforms you are very aware that you are a quote user and not a person, but we're all people. And so we should have like... Our, our peopleness, our humanness should be at the center of all of our experiences online, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so I saw that, that Naj, before Somewhere Good, she founded Ethel's Club, a, a social club and co-working space for people of color in Brooklyn. Had you been to this, this space before? Is like that how you got introduced to, to her? So I'm very familiar with Ethel's Club, but I am not a member. They don't have oh. one. I live in D.C. They don't have one here. Uh, oh, my bad. I, I thought you were in New York. Yeah. Oh, I, I used to live in New York pre-COVID, but now I'm in D.C., yeah, I have not been able to go, but um, again, I think that like the fact that that she founded co-working spaces and community spaces for particularly for people of color, I think really demonstrates like what she's about. Like, I like the idea of carving out spaces where we can show up authentically as ourselves, and I think the fact that she's she brought that to first physical spaces with Ethel's Club, and then now online spaces with Somewhere Good, it's like. I just really see the vision that she is trying to create in terms of carving out these intentional spaces online and off where folks can show up and just have a different kind of experience. Yeah, I mean, before the term got distorted out of all recognition, I mean, this is how I first learned of the term safe spaces, right? It's this idea of like a place where you can go where it's just your authentic self. You don't need to be looking over your shoulder. You can have maybe a tough conversation with it without second-guessing yourself. Um, And I'm I'm so glad that someone is trying to make that happen online because it's very difficult to do. Yeah, we don't have nearly enough places. Like, I know the term safe space is, like, 
people don't like that term now, but we mm-hmm. don't have enough spaces where people can like just show off authentically as themselves and it, it, where it just feels good. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, what are some things you think that we can do to learn from Naja's example? Like what can regular people do to make the internet a better place in the same way that she does? Ooh, I love this question. You know, I would say just really practice being a good steward of the internet, the same way yeah. that you want to be a good steward of the environment. Be a good steward of the of the digital environment as well. And so really be mindful about what you're putting out on the internet, what you're consuming yourself on the internet. Practice like intentional slowing down when you're on the internet. Like when I'm scrolling my social media feed, I try to be very aware of like, well, how am I feeling? Did this post make me feel anxious or sad? Or am I comparing myself to them? Um, I think that like, it really does start with individual choices and individual uh, mindfulness. And then I would say, even if you're hate following somebody like Meghan McCain, like I am, you know, really thinking like, like when you send a tweet or send a post, like, does this need to be said on this platform by me right now? Is it helpful? Mm-hmm. Is it kind? Right? Like, there's so much value in having a perspective, having an attitude, having an idea, and just like thinking it and being like, okay, I thought that and I didn't tweet it. And there it goes, it goes away, right? So just really asking yourself, before you hit send, is this really what I want to be doing? And just slowing down because, you know, I think social media companies, they want us to be in this hype, like this heightened sense where we're like smashing retweet and like hitting like immediately, like that benefits them. It doesn't benefit us. It doesn't make our our digital ecosystems any better, any smarter, any more thoughtful. It doesn't make us physically and emotionally feel any better. And so why do we continue to engage in behavior that only benefits tech millionaires or, and billionaires, we shouldn't, right? So we should really come from places that really champion and care for ourselves and our online communities and our offline communities when we're using these platforms. Yeah. I think the the, the tricky part, though, is for something, I mean, you mentioned somewhere good is in beta now, just limited number of users. And I guess the tricky part is like, do you have a thousand different somewhere good apps for these small communities? Everyone in some way needs to have they need to socially connect in a way that's not just with all these angry strangers on Twitter, right? I, I think I think it's really important and good to have the opportunity to express yourself in a different way, to not be feeding into that cycle, that, that vicious cycle that only benefits the Silicon Valley billionaires. But at the same time, it's like, it's that scale question, right? Of where does that happen? Is it just a lot of very tiny little islands? Is it one island with a lot of neighborhoods. I, I don't know the answer to this. I'm just, you know, <laughs> I'm just wondering what this looks like. It's something I grapple with all the time. And and I think that the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. I think that what Naj is doing with Somewhere Good is incredible, full stop, end of sentence. Anybody who wants to to build their own thing where folks can show up in a different kind of way that's that's more positive or more thoughtful or more gratifying, I think is great. However, people shouldn't have to do that to show up safely and authentically online, right? Like, yeah. I, I think what they're doing is great, but we deserve to have digital spaces and digital ecosystems that are where thoughtful content and accurate information is incentivized and can thrive. And we don't have that. And so it shouldn't be up to us as individuals to go out and like raise seed mm-hmm. funding to build our own <laughs> thing and like hire coders and this and that. We deserve that. That's what our, eco- our, our digital media ecosystems should be because we deserve it. And so while it's great that people build their own spaces that I'm very excited about, we should still be advocating for tech leaders to do the right thing and really 
own up to this massive responsibility that we, the people, have, have allowed them to have and make sure that our spaces are able to be spaces where we can all show up authentically and meaningfully and really thrive. We'll see how Elon Musk does. I, I've <laughs> I don't I know, have high hopes. Responsibility. Yeah, me either. <laughs> me either. Well, that was Naj Austin, who is on Instagram at Naj Austin and on Twitter at Naj Mahal. As a reminder, our supporters on Patreon get a fifth bonus follow every week, including one from Bridget. Go to patreon.com slash follow Friday and donate any amount to unlock that now. This week, patrons can hear Bridget talking about a brilliant writer and artist who quit Twitter in 2014, but he really needs to come back. Bridget, before we go, let's make sure that listeners know how to find you online. Where do you want them to follow you? Oh, you can follow me on Twitter at Bridget Marie or on Instagram at Bridget Marie in DC, like I am, like it's where I live. Or you can listen to my podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet, on iHeartRadio. You can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast on. Oh, you're a pro. I can tell you've said that a couple times before. <laughs> like a thousand <laughs> times a day, yeah. <laughs> well, you can follow me on Twitter at HeyHeyESJ. And please subscribe to the Follow Friday newsletter at followfriday.substack.com. If you like this episode, then check out the past Follow Friday interviews with The Stacks host Tracy Thomas, The Guyliner writer Justin Myers, and comedian Alexis Gay. Follow Friday is a production of lightningpod.fm. Our theme music was written by me and performed by Yona Marie. Our show art was illustrated by Dodie Hermerwan, and our social media producer is Sydney Grodin. Special thanks to our Big Fry Patreon backers, John and Justin. That's all for this week. This is Eric Johnson reminding you to talk about people behind their backs. And when you do, say something nice. I'll see you next Friday. One more time, thank you to our sponsor, Apprentice. On average, business executives that work with Apprentice save 60 hours a month in management, sales, and marketing tasks. Apprentices help you free your schedule by working on a range of projects from digital marketing to project management. And whatever projects you are starting in Q2, you can get four weeks of free executive assistance if you're a C-level executive with fewer than 30 employees. Connect with Apprentice's matching team today at this URL, followfriday.net slash apprentice. Again, that's followfriday.net slash apprentice. One more thing before we go. Thank you to John and Justin from Transistor.fm for backing Follow Friday on Patreon. Transistor is an independent podcast hosting company with a simple, modern interface for uploading audio, distributing your podcast, and viewing analytics. You can also make as many podcasts on Transistor as you want for no extra cost, and you can invite additional users to access the show settings, upload episodes, view analytics, and more. Check them out at Transistor.fm.